Hey, and welcome to episode 46 of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm so excited to be joined by Rebecca Shalton, founder and CEO of WiseApple. WiseApple is revolutionizing the way parents and kids think about school lunches by delivering customized healthy meals and snacks for kids right to your door. While it may seem daunting, Rebecca is no stranger to overcoming the odds. Certain childhood experiences taught her to conquer fear and create opportunities for herself, no matter how big the task at hand. She exudes a great deal of grit and perseverance, and I'm so thrilled to share her story. Rebecca, thank you for making the time to be on my show today. Excited to have you. Of course. It's good to be here. Thanks. So let's start by talking about Wise Apple and what it is. Sure. So Wise Apple is a new company. We're located in Chicago that focuses on delivering customizable and healthy meals and snacks for kids. So a new take on a lot of the changes that are happening in the food industry. Yeah. And so what is the opportunity here? Like, why did you see this problem and, and why, you know, is no one else doing that? The idea came out of actually something in my personal life. And you sort of need to have the context of what I was doing before this business for it to make sense. Mm-hmm. So quick rundown of my background. I was a consultant for three years. And when everyone went to business school, I actually chose a totally different path. And I, that led me to Peru. I lived in Lima for three years and I was working in economic development. And the whole premise of my work was how do you give women freedom and economic opportunities through entrepreneurship? And so I worked with over 1,500 entrepreneurs, 75% of whom were in food and beverage. Um, and it was really a means of like, how, how do you give these women full-time career opportunities that can help change not only the, the future for their families, but also help contribute to the broader economy in Peru. So it's a middle-income country, and entrepreneurship is a huge way that they've grown over the last 20 years. So after doing three years of that, I moved back to the U.S. to go to business school because I was like, you know, working with entrepreneurs is amazing. I really want to dig into this and start my own business. And about, I don't know, almost at the end of my first year of business school, there was a theme that started emerging and the conversations that was happening with my friends and family because they were all having kids and they were on their second and third child and they were all, you know, hitting these milestones like starting school or starting daycare. And what that meant for my friends as moms was like they have their full-time job and they're also having these like really crazy pressures of family life where they felt like they were failing. And so... The theme was mom guilt. It all revolved around food. It was like my kids, you know, like in the mornings, I'm just like getting right out the door. And what I'm doing is I'm pulling crap out of the pantry, sticking in a bag and like everyone's getting out. And the only time I really can focus on this is dinner. And one of my friends actually came to me and said, I'm going to quit my job. And I was like, oh my God, you can't quit your job. I like, I just did this for three years. We're like, you know, you can have a career and have economic independence and have a family. And so we started by trying to solve this problem for her family. It was like, how do you get real food back into these crazy chaotic moments of like on the go everything, which is just sort of how families live now. Yes, definitely. But I'm, it's really curious to me because when I saw it was Apple, I thought it was a really interesting idea, but I also immediately thought of the other side, which is that gets a lot of bad press, which is school lunches and what they serve us. Yeah. And so do you ever plan to combat that? Or are you simply trying to sell to 
consumers or do you ever see like partnerships with schools in the future as being, yeah. you know, solving a lot of these problems and, and helping with the mom guild as well? There is a huge opportunity when you look at just the landscape of this market. It's a $20 billion industry just in the schools alone. But what you, what you don't realize until you actually start to dig into the data is that there's a whole other market of people who don't buy into the school lunch program because it's so bad. The reason that we chose to go after the consumer instead of going B2B, there's actually like a lot of reasons. One of the things that I learned when I was in Peru was like, when you think about how you make change, change happens, generational change often happens when you work with younger generations. And so it happens through the kids. When we were talking about how do you actually make change, focusing on where the conversation happens and focusing where kids are actually making habits. You know, how do you, how kids are understanding a food system? You might think, oh, well, school is like a logical place for that, but that's not actually where they're talking about food. If you think about like, if you remember what lunch was like when you were in grade school, it hasn't changed much. You have 20 yeah. minutes, right? You're like being shoveled through a line or you're taking what you, what your mom packed and you're eating as much of it as you can. And it ends mm -hmm. up being like, finger foods and this like afterthought experience food is emotional right so when you think about dinner and you think about like travel and and all these things that as an adult you're like the reasons why people are foodies it's all emotional at the end of the day but like school lunch and snacks it, it's it's completely functional and you're you're sort of we've taken away that experience so our thought process is like okay if we go to the home and make this a consumer business a you're solving a problem for mom, which is something that I was really, really passionate about. But B, you're also, you can involve the kid. Our whole platform is meant that kids can customize. Kids can be autonomous. They can be in the decision-making seat with their parents. The way that the process is set up because it's online and it is customizable, like mom can actually say, she can look at it and be like, okay, I agree with this food from a food values perspective. And I'll let my kid have the autonomy and exert their individualism and start making decisions at a younger age and all those things because I, I agree with the philosophy of the company, which I think is way more powerful than standing in a lunch line of a Sodexo or something where it, it just, it's passive mm -hmm. and it becomes a lot more functional. I'm assuming then things that you think about are variety and probably transparency of ingredients and, and I think would think that the parents that choose Wise Apple would really want that level of transparency in foods. Is that the case? Yeah. So our like brand promise, so it's we source the way that you would. So we pay attention to where our food's coming from and it's real. So there's no there's no preservatives, there's no GMO, there's no antibiotic. So we say, okay, do we feel good about where this is coming from? Would we buy this at the grocery store? Would we feed this to our kids, right? There's like a lot of filters that go into that. Mm -hmm. that then gets communicated that we we use composting here you know like we have very little food waste so it's all it's the same principles that we believe our customers value the whole idea is we have food that kids will actually eat and that mom can feel good about so i'd have to ask what do you think the biggest challenge thus far has been you know i talked to david from tabal about this and and their problem was that people like the quality is so good, but people have to taste it to believe it a lot of the times. Oh yeah, for sure. And their product is really great. It's phenomenal. Yeah. For us, it's it's a really interesting challenge to not sell directly to children, but have them be the yes, no decision 
on a repeat purchase because my passion really comes from this support system for parents. And, and I don't believe that every woman has to be Betty Crocker, right? And that she shouldn't mm-hmm. feel guilty about it, but she doesn't have to forego good food in her life, right? So I was so intent on mom that I think we like nailed getting moms to purchase and they're like, this makes sense. Why didn't, why doesn't this exist? This is the ban of my existence, right? Like really focus on that. We missed on the menu for the kids, which seems so obvious. Like when you say mm-hmm. it out loud a year later. So we've spent since January of last year, really figuring out what's the experience for the kids. Mm-hmm. If they're the key to making this like a really, really successful business, how is it fun for them? How are they involved in the process? What kind of foods do they want? Because it's like, we all want kids to be really, really healthy eaters. But the reality is a lot of them have aversions to things that like you would love them to eat. And so it's a balance. So that's like our whole premise is balance. Some is adventurous. There's a lot of really, really simple, but good for you items on the menu. So nailing that mix has been really, really, really tricky. Well, it's funny because you have multi-party buy-in and, you know, you have the decision maker who ultimately is mom or dad paying for the meal, but you have to have buy-in from the kid who is the ultimate end user. So it's an interesting product um, and go-to-market that you have to think about. Yes, exactly. You mentioned Chicago before. So what is it like growing a startup in Chicago and what's the benefits you see to being headquartered there? Uh, I think Chicago is a great place to build a business. I actually think it's a great place, especially for women to build a, to build businesses. So we have the most women started companies in the country. Wow, really? A, oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. The rub there is that so New York's the best place from a funding perspective for women. I think Chicago will get there. It's our our VC community is growing. So it's not as big. So that that's that relationship makes sense in New York, but the community for women here is strong. I think generally, you know, Midwesterners are, we're like true to all the stereotypes, if you will, like hardworking, everyone's really nice. Everybody is like very, very eager to help. And so there's, there's competition because that is just business, but I don't think anybody would look at a a business who's in a similar stage and not just want them to succeed or want to help them. It's a very give first mentality. Mm -hmm. And I think that the other thing that we have going for us is sort of a focus on reality. And I don't actually mean that critically. I think Silicon Valley invests and has created an incredible amount of moonshot companies and New York has its strengths as well. I think Chicago is really, really good at disrupting really stodgy industries that grew up here. So if you think Mm -hmm. about real estate, you think about logistics, you think about food. CPG, um, yeah. CPG, right? Like this is a very, very logical place for those companies to be disrupted. And you have a lot of investors and family offices who have made billions and millions in those industries that are like, yeah, it's about time someone changes that, right? Like, so they get it. Um, and they want mm-hmm. to see that next generation come through and bring sort of like what they they built into the next generation. But essentially what comes with the Midwestern mindset is like, are you unit economic profitable? Grow and grow aggressively, but don't grow just for the sake of growing. You have to have a healthy business underneath it. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of companies who have really nice exits. They might not be unicorns, but they're really healthy in terms of it creates wealth for the economy it creates wealth for the, the individuals etc what we don't have and i'm very vocal about this is like 
we have only a couple of women who've had really big exits and we need more. Yeah, definitely. But of course that takes time, like anything. And you might be one such woman to help the next generation. Yeah, I would love that, obviously. So you mentioned, you know, the Midwestern stereotype and it makes me wonder, where are you originally from? Where did you grow up? I am from here. Both my business partner and I are, he's third generation entrepreneur from Chicago. And I'm second generation. But so we both grew up here. Uh, left for college and then came back. So I think it also makes logical sense that we would want to start a business here. So you're a second generation entrepreneur. So your parents were entrepreneurs. Yeah. So Nate's family has been in the food industry for 40 years. They had, yeah, they created the concept of ready cut produce. So a lot of companies like, you know, when you go to a fast casual or a fast food restaurant and they have like sliced apples, they don't cut those in house. So his family helps build that industry along with other companies. And my dad was a real estate developer. Oh, wow. Okay. And so when you were younger, what did you originally want to be when you grew up? Yeah, it's so funny. I, you're the first person to really ever ask me this in, in a context <laughs> like this. And I, I think it's so relevant. You take for granted. I had no idea what like a corporate career looked like. No one in mm-hmm. my family had one. My mom was a nurse practitioner and my dad was a real estate developer. I wanted to be a, a biologist and then realized that, that I didn't love science enough to do that. And then <laughs> kind I of critical. I know, I know, right? But that's like when I was like 14 or 15 and then I took physics and was like, ooh, maybe science isn't what I want to spend my life doing. <laughs> and so then I decided I want to be a real estate developer. So I, I actually pursued that for a long time because, you know, you grow up talking about real estate. Real estate's a very like familial business. And I just inherently like know a lot about it because it was conversation in my household. My brother-in-law is a real estate developer here. Uh, A lot of my friends went into real estate and I went in from the finance route and I found it was so boring. I was like, I'm not an Excel jockey, right? So I, I tried it. Then the market crashed in 2008 anyways. And I was like, I need to make some money. So I became a consultant because like, what do you do when you don't know what you want to do? You become, you become a, a consultant. consultant. <laughs> As a business school woman, you, like, right, you can understand that and relate. Yeah, um, I was a consultant before school as well. So I, I definitely understand that. Yeah. And it was a great training ground for a lot of things. But interestingly, like being in that environment, what it helped me realize was like, I was very much what they would call an entrepreneur. Like I was never doing the same things as my peers. I convinced them to like pay me to take a sabbatical and start a family office philanthropy. Like I just was doing all sorts of weird things that felt normal to me, but they weren't following the path that I was supposed to be on. And so I was like, oh, I like creating stuff. Like I like think a little bit differently. And and I was like, I don't think a big corporation is like the place for me. So I just sort of like fell into entrepreneurship is how I think about it. But it's natural when you look back and I'm like, oh, I really didn't know what just like a steady job looked like. Because no one in my family had one. No, it it makes sense. I think in retrospect, a lot of things end up putting together. And obviously my podcast is all about retrospective thinking. And one thing that you brought up before was really interesting to me because I went through a similar journey is you left Deloitte and you went to Lima and you, you followed this unconventional path. And do you think that is when the kind of aha moment went off for you to think like, I don't have to live the life that everyone wants and, and maybe entrepreneurship is a viable career for me. I can take this big risk and things work out just fine. Yeah. I wish I could say that that was like the maturity of my thought at that <laughs> age. <laughs> it was not. And, and again, like retrospective, you know, it's 
all this stuff does make sense when you look back. Like as I started to really mature in my own right as as a as a founder and as an entrepreneur, like I started asking my mom, like just sort of like, oh, you know, when I was little, what kinds of things was I what what did you think I was going to do? And one of the things she told me, she was like, you've always just been a fighter. You know, when, when there were like gifted programs and I, that sounds ridiculous to say out loud, but that was what they called it. Yeah. I didn't get into it initially when I was eight. And I came home as an eight-year-old and told my mom that it wasn't right and that I needed to be retested and that I was bored in school, which I actually think is like, I'm like, oh my God, what a precocious little child. Um, I think about like the six, seven, eight year olds that I know. And I'm like, I can't believe I did that. But that, that's sort of like my mom, my mom was like, but you've always been like that. She's like, there was no telling, you no. And so she's like, I wasn't the super involved parent. And I had to go to the principal and tell them that you requested to be retested. And sure enough, like they made me take an IQ test and I got in, but it was one of those things. Like I was, I was going to have to fight for myself was my mentality from when I was like a little kid. Which is funny because that sets the tone for the rest of your life, telling yourself that you're gifted. I feel like those classes, when they put you in advanced classes, then literally changes the course of your life because you're told over and over again, you're smart, you're smart, and you have confidence, and you end up applying to different schools. I mean, just literally, I have this theory that the paths we're on can be traced back to middle school when they put you in those. It's like they decide so young if you're worthy or not to be in these classes. And so I love that you fought for yourself which is such a rare thing to do at eight years old. I would imagine I can see my, my feisty mom fighting for me, but I don't know if I would have fought for myself. But beyond that, like I think opportunity is everything, right? Yeah. And whether you create it for yourself, somebody gives it to you, you know, somebody like helps you along the way and all of those things happen or like you're banging on doors to create those opportunities. But like I, I grew up and I'm the youngest of four girls. I was never told that there were limits. I was never told that I couldn't do something. And so I just assumed that everything was there for the taking, I think, because that was my dad at a very early age was like, you fight for yourself because like in, in my family, like I was the most, most athletic and the strongest, but I was the youngest. And he was like, you're actually stronger than your older sister who's picking on you. So I'm not gonna, you have to learn how to defend yourself against her. And that was like, I mean, that's a parenting thing. So like, don't judge my dad. But like, <laughs> it was it was something that wasn't like, no one was going to go protect me from it. And, and it was, I think, how I just learned to be. And you're right. Like, I think that that changed sort of just how I viewed things. And so mm. it, A, everything was possible. And B, it was like, everything is what you make it. So you make it great. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and that like still right? Entrepreneurship is really, really hard. And you look back and like, even from a business school perspective, there's so many people who have way better ideas than I could ever come up with in a million years. But the like jump of, I'm just going to go talk to people about it and see what they think. And then just start like creating stuff that like, wasn't scary. Of course it's scary. That's like not a nice thing to say. It's scary, but I had, it was muscle memory. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not perfect now. And you're still like learning and trying to figure it out. So it's like, okay, we're just going to, we're going to keep going and keep figuring it out and keep trying to knock down some walls. Yeah. I love that you say it's muscle memory because that's, that's the perfect way to put it. It's like, of course you have the fear, but you have to just buckle down and get used to it. And I think I point to a lot of early childhood experiences that teach you that, whether you've gone through strife Mm -hmm. of your own or, you know, you've had to learn. I think there's so much interest in formative years to me that 
become who we are because but I've never thought of it that way. And it is, it's muscle memory. It's just the things that you have learned that were hard when you were younger, but you sucked it up and did it anyway. And so by the yeah. time you're older, you're used to just being like, let's get down to work and, and have that grit to really succeed. Yeah, it's grit. But I also think, by the way, I think people have a tremendous capacity for growth that most people don't tap into. There's a great book about the growth mindset. And I think, unfortunately, like a lot of us do think, okay, we have like fixed capabilities, fixed intelligence, fixed like all these things, because you're right, we're labeled at like super early age about who we are and what we are. And I think that it totally discounts the human capacity to to learn new things and to grow and to push ourselves. And And I'm not saying that everybody's supposed to be Mark Zuckerberg because there's one Mark Zuckerberg. But, you know, I do think people rarely try and push themselves to grow and to do new things and to try new things because it's so much easier to go the other route. (laughs) And I think that I think you're right. I think there is capacity for growth, but it's more the willingness to grow. And I think that is what when you say growth mindset, I think you have to be open to it. And so, yes, people can grow and change. But I've in my life, I've realized that I only was able to grow once I've accepted that I want to change you know, those certain behaviors. And I think that's just a lot of maturity um, that comes later in life, but you have to be open to that growth. Yeah, 100%. Great. So, you know, I want to leave you with this before we get to our fun questions. Where do you think, where do you see Wise Apple in the next five to 10 years? Like what would be your dream? Yeah. What would be your dream for the company? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So much stuff. I think when we set out to build this business, it was really important to us that the ability to build a national household brand was there. And again, that goes back to like, we made a very conscious decision to be a consumer brand. I want to be a trusted part of what I call a family supply chain. You know, Mm -hmm. that like recognizable thing that shows up on someone's doorstep. And I think that a huge part of that is like, as the grocery world changes and fresh food supply chain changes, you see it with Whole Foods and Amazon. Like we want to be a part of that. And that means that like we can brand our like freaking awesome desserts that have no extra sugar in them and use all natural food, but they're still delicious, right? Like you can brand those and you can imagine them being on, on a shelf somewhere. I think there's just so much potential for what this looks like in an omni-channel, omni-channel environment and finding the right partners to do that through and and really building a brand that's not only kids' lunches, but it's, you know, snacks and it's it's family-oriented. Uh, there's just so much potential there. Yes, I agree. And and so let's end with a few fun questions. And so okay. what is another Chicago startup that you really love? Oh, oh my gosh. This is so easy. So there <laughs> is a young, oh my God, there's a young guy here and he knows this. He'll laugh if he ever hears this. Um, named Jeff Kahn, who is my self-proclaimed like new favorite person. He is CEO and founder of a company called Rise Science, and they study how we sleep. Um, okay. And he literally is like changing people's lives. So most people need a very, very narrow bandwidth of sleep it's between like 7.1 and 8.12 like right you hear these people entrepreneurs are like totally in this bucket we're like i only need five hours of sleep to exist right like it's just fundamentally not true when you look at the science and the research like everybody's in a pretty narrow bandwidth 
Um, so he's studying that and he's helping sports teams perform better, like it actually correlates to scientifically to your output. So imagine that if we were all like just normal sleepers, we would be better at like what we did. So he's starting with sports teams, but I think a, he's just incredibly bright and, and just like a really awesome person. But I think that what he's doing has the potential to change a lot of people's lives for the better. I love that. I, I'm curious though, are you an insomniac where you really want this in your life? Or, and I wonder how he views like the burgeoning mattress companies that we see coming out like Helix and Casper changing sleep on that. End and, and, you know, going the science behind it is, is really an interesting angle. So I think he, you'll have to get him on the podcast to talk about the mattress companies. I think that there's like, there is some stuff there. But I think that he and um, his colleagues believe that really the fundamental changes you don't need a better mattress for um, and that there are other things that you should be doing. I am an insomniac. I'm like a whole other bucket of people that actually I have like a sleep disorder. And so there are different things that I have to do. But it's super interesting because like I'm a very, very high functioning insomniac and that I know how to deal with it. Mm. I, I like have my behaviors but they're coping mechanisms. I'm not actually solving the problem. So we're doing some like testing where he wants to help me solve the problem. But anyways, I think what he's doing is, is just really cool. And I think he just has a ton of potential as a, as a, as a human. Yeah. Well, I love the passion. That's always a good sign. Uh, and so I'll leave you with this. If you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? I just have three people pop up in my brain. Oh, tell me all three. Um, that's great. <laughs> but that's hard because I, and they all happen to be, you know, they're Chicago. You know who I would interview? Emily Weiss from Glossier. Oh, great. Find, great pick. Why? I find what she's done to be fascinating from a lot of perspectives. She's done sort of like what everybody dreams of doing. She's productized her content, her following, and her knowledge, and grown in a total word of mouth. She's created, She's a, it's a cult, like they call themselves a cult. I would be most curious about what was the moment for her where she was like, I should make a business product, right? So she had a, she had a blog and Into the Gloss is successful in and of itself, but mm-hmm. I would want to interview her. Jason Freed, Basecamp founder. I just think he's really interesting. And he I did interview him actually. You, yeah. So he is controversial. Like, yeah opinion I, I loved having him on the show i think he's candid and and really interesting I, i'm a big fan of you know bootstrapping as much as you can uh and so i, I love talking to him actually yeah so interesting so jeff Kahn, the guy who i was just talking about just got connected to jason so maybe jason will be an evangelist for for rye science that's great thanks for giving me a few to think about uh all right well thanks for being on my show today it was awesome having you thanks so much super fun All right, that's a wrap on this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.